Welcome back. We are at about 10.30, a little bit after, so we'll dive in this morning. We can start with prayer requests. All right, then I will open us in prayer and we'll be back in Deuteronomy 4 this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you that you have drawn us here around your word your revelation that you have enshrined for us in the scriptures. You say your word will never pass. It is eternal like you are eternal. And so we come here knowing that we do not find fashionable truths, but eternal truths. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to this this morning, that we would be encouraged and comforted and corrected and rebuked each in those areas where we need it. We pray that you would grow our understanding, that our faith may deepen, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the middle of Deuteronomy chapter 4. We got through the first 14 verses. Very briefly, uh, we need to review where we've been because we're picking it up kind of in the middle of a, a section here. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Moses exhorts Israel to listen to the Lord's instructions because the Lord has drawn near to Israel. The presence of the Lord is always a tricky thing and needs to be handled with care. Now, we might say the Lord is present everywhere, and indeed he is, but he is present to bless or to curse, as John Frame would put it, in particular Instances, and that is Israel's experience. So verses 1 to 5, Israel is told to listen up to what the Lord has instructed them. Verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4, Moses tells Israel to keep and to do all that he is teaching and commanding them so that the people might be a gospel light in the world and the world would notice it because Israel would display several advantages in verses 7 and 8. First, They would have the continued nearness of God, and they would have the Torah, or the instruction of God, which is the foundation of Israel's great wisdom and understanding in the eyes of all the nations who are around. Verses 9 through 14, Moses commands Israel to keep themselves and to teach their children that they and the Lord have drawn near to each other and formed a covenant relationship. That is very important. We were explaining to our kids earlier this week, every child has a mommy and a daddy. The reason you exist is because you have a mom and dad. The reason anyone exists is because they have a mom and dad. The reason the Israelites exist is because they are the offspring of a covenant between the Lord and his people. They are to teach their children that truth uh, going forward. This leads us now where we are for today in verses 15 through 24, which is the first stop we will make this morning. Based on this covenant that they have made, Moses now warns Israel against idolatry. So let's start, actually, in verse 12, because Moses picks up the theme from chapter 4, verse 12, and he expands on that in verses 15 and 16. So verse 12 of chapter 4, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, 
You heard a voice of words, but you did not see a likeness, only a voice. Then in chapter 4, verse 15, watch, therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And he goes on, we'll come to the rest of that uh, very soon. So it begins in verse 15 with the command, watch yourselves very carefully. This is very much like the command he gave in verse 9, only take care and keep your souls diligently. So in verses 6 to 8, Moses tells Israel, keep, uh, guard, watch, um, pay attention to, protect the, the statutes and the judgments or the rules that he's giving. Then in verse 9 and in verse 15, he makes a switch from watching and guarding the statutes and the rules to watching and guarding themselves. And so there are two nuances here of their guarding and watching. The similarities to what came earlier in verse 9, though, is that they are to remember what they saw, or more appropriately, what they didn't. You didn't see any form. And now here he elaborates on the implications that that has for worship. Because you didn't see any form, you shall not make any form. You cannot represent the Lord visually, without distorting what you know. And so guard yourselves, because your tendency is going to be to create physical images of the Lord who specifically revealed himself apart from physical images. And so because, as Calvin says, the, the heart is a perpetual idol factory, watch yourselves so you do not make idols and images. We have a tendency to let our own imaginative hearts have more authority in our thinking than the revealed word of God. The Lord says, don't do that. Contain your imagination. Pay attention to the things you have seen and the things you have heard. Which is why, if we were to jump back up to verse 2 of chapter 4, Moses gives Israel this command. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Don't add to what you have heard. And we might even say to what you haven't seen. Uh, watch yourselves, lest you make an image. Now, what are those images? Verse, the last half of verse 16, the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Let's stop for a moment. What is the reason for an idol anyway? Maybe it would be helpful to, to lay that groundwork real quickly. What is the reason for, their, for an idol or for their use? In ancient Near Eastern thinking, an idol represented what it was an image of. For a modern example, think of a voodoo doll. 
A voodoo doll is a doll made to look like someone, has uh, shared characteristics, and those uh, dolls represent and function as the representative for the very thing they are made to look like. Now, it's very careful to make a slight distinction between the idol and the god that is supposed to be represented by the idol. There is a distinction there. That is one of the reasons why oxen were often used to represent gods. Oxen represent strength. And so, if you want to emphasize the strength of your god, you make an idol that often looks like a bull or even a figurine that stands on the back of a bull. And he's got a tremendous power that this god harnesses, therefore we represent him as one who harnesses power. Pregnant women often represented fertility. Right? So there are figurines of impregnated women, and you can make a long, long list going forward. Now, if the image of a god could be cast, and it doesn't have to work perfectly, it doesn't have to be a perfect representation, it just has to be close, that idol would function then as the representation of that god who has now come near and grows in sympathy with and listens to the person who has that idol. So as the one who represents it, uh, that idol becomes significant. A worshiper needed a god, basically, needed an idol in order to have the nearness of a god. If you want the god's ear, you have to have the idol. This is no different than our common experience, except we don't put it in stone and metals, right? Think of uh, an ambassador, right? Idols worked somewhere between the combination of an ambassador and the little red line that's hooked to the White House, right? The red phone uh, that's connected to the White House. That's what an idol functioned as. On the one hand, the phone is a one-way communication. The White House never calls me, right? But if I have the red phone, I can call the White House when I'm in trouble. The God never contacts the individual, or very rarely contacts the individual. The individual contacts the God, so it works like that line. On the other hand, an ambassador represents truly the one who sent him, right? That's, that's how we understand apostleship works. We listen to Paul because he represents Christ, and as we listen to Paul or don't listen to Paul, we do or don't listen to Christ. The idol works in the exact same fashion. The idol is the means by which that God is represented to the worshiper. And so if you want the God to hear you, who do you talk to? His ambassador. So uh, idols are designed to function like that. Now the reason, again, for prohibiting any image of the Lord is because any time he is physically represented, he is misrepresented. It can also happen audibly, but uh, not quite the same way. Anytime we emphasize one of God's attributes or even a couple of God's attributes and do not give equal emphasis to all the other attributes, we misrepresent him. Which is why visual images of the Lord never work. Visual images cannot represent all of God in the same way words and ears can do it. So Israel is forbidden to represent her God with 
anything that they can observe in the world around them. Notice how verse 16 and 17 and even 18 are only dealing with the things in the earth. Which, not coincidentally, the other thing an idol does is the fact of having an idol dictates to a degree the way a worshiper will worship. And as the means by which that God connects with the worshiper, the person truly does worship the idol as the representative. We worship Jesus as the representative of God too. So the person worships the idol, but all of the things listed here are the things humanity was specifically designed to rule in Genesis 1. So all of the categories given in verse 16, 17, and 18, man was meant to rule, not worship. So those things are specifically prohibited, both by implication in Genesis 1, but now explicitly because the Lord didn't reveal himself by any of those things when he came to them. Moreover, Israel is warned to guard themselves, back in verse 15 again, watch yourselves very carefully, lest they slip back into the mainstream's ideas. Don't think the way the people around you think. You think based on the way the Lord has revealed himself to you. And how did he reveal himself to you? With words. Don't conjure up images of the Lord. Don't reveal the Lord. Don't represent the Lord as having a body because you did not see any bodily form when he came to you. Now this brings us to an issue that we have in our own day, and it is a theological debate. Has Jesus changed this commandment? Can we represent God or represent Jesus? The argument goes like this. God had never manifested himself before. In Jesus, God is fully represented, right? Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the way, the the physical representation of the Lord. Therefore, since the Lord thought it was right to manifest himself with material creation, we can now represent the Lord with material creation, not the Father, but the Son. So we have a plethora of pictures of Jesus and um, so on and so forth, represented in all different ways. And the question is, is that legitimate? Is it good and right and wise to represent Jesus uh, pictorially? I'm skeptical that any conclusive argument can be made one way or the other. Um, I would not call it a sin to do so. However, when I hear people eager to represent Christ pictorially, I have a uh, a skeptical reaction uh, and a cautious one as well. First, pictures are static. They are open to subjective interpretation, and they are always misleading. Always, mis- a, a picture is never an accurate representation of anything. Um, so. Uh, That is problematic because though God's relationship to us is consistent, it's not static. And it's not open to interpretation. The only one who interprets the Lord and his relationship to us and what he is in the world, the only one who can represent that 
is his own words. He's only given us words. Words are how the Lord has represented himself. And more than that, the Spirit, in his infinite wisdom, saw fit to represent Jesus to us verbally through the written word, not through any enshrined picture. We, we have no pictures that date back to the time of Christ. The Spirit has preserved for us words in keeping with revelation from the beginning. Not only that, but as fallen people, and more to Deuteronomy 4, because of our corrupted nature and our tendency to corrupt even good things, we inevitably turn pictures into what they are not supposed to be. So we, we do use a picture Bible when we are reading to our kids, and they do have pictures of Jesus. They have pictures of Joseph and everything else. The problem, or uh, I don't know if it's a problem necessarily, but one of the difficulties in doing that, though, is their image or their conception of what any Bible character is is bound up with the image that they see. The image sticks longer than the words. I don't know why, it just happens that way. The image always sticks longer than the words. And I have never heard from either a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox a persuasive difference between veneration and worship. They will say, you know, having a picture of Jesus is like having a picture of my loved ones. Yeah, there's nothing wrong if I kiss the picture. And so you have Eastern Orthodox on their way into the sanctuary. They stop at the picture of Jesus. They bow, They bend over. I'd say bow, but bend over. They kiss the picture, and into the sanctuary they go. They would say that is not worship. I will let you decide whether you think it is or not. Um, but we do have a tendency to place greater emphasis on the visual than on the auditory. And divine revelation works exactly the opposite. And that's the point Moses is making here. So again, I don't think it's sinful, uh, but it, because of our own nature, an image almost always becomes the idea it represents. Questions or comments over that before we move on? Then we will take a small step on here to verse 19. So again, uh, all under the command of verse 15, therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Keep yourselves, keep your souls exceedingly. Verse 19, and beware 
lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. Here he is not dealing with images that are made, but these images, or these objects, rather, were commonly believed to represent powerful and enduring deities, right? What is, what is longer lasting than the sun and the moon? Um, rivers change their course. The sun and the moon and stars are, are pretty constant. And so because of their power and their uh, influence over the world, they were almost certainly believed to be divine beings who ruled, which is not far off from the way Genesis 1 articulates it, right? So Genesis 1, verses 16 to 18, the Lord makes the lights, but in verse 14, Genesis 1, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the heavens, lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Continuing on, I guess in verse 16, because we're here anyway. And God made the two lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Here there is a distinction. No longer are these things given to humanity to rule. These things rule our times, not Humanity, only the Lord rules humanity, but they rule the times in which humanity lives. And so these are powers that are greater than us. And Moses warns against lifting up the eyes, seeing, being compelled or being lured or drawn away, and then bowing down and eventually serving these objects. The world is filled with powers beyond ourselves. Let us not be overly taken with them. Israel is to remember that there is one sovereign Lord who created them and established them. That is the one they are to worship. Not only that, but he gives an additional reason, verse 19, towards the end of it. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under who are under the whole heavens. Some commentators, evangelical commentators even, will sometimes go this way. And say, see, the Lord has given all of these objects to the peoples as objects of worship. And so there are many commentators who will say there is no sin for pagan nations worshiping pagan deities. Uh, the Lord gave them to the peoples to worship. I don't think you need to go there. I think Genesis 1 gives the explanation, which is these things are given to all of humanity to mark times and seasons. Not just Israel, though Israel's calendar revolves around them. These things are given to everyone under the heavens for their own advantage. These things are meant to be a blessing to all peoples. And so the point here seems to be that even though what lies above the realm of human living gives advantages to all people, Israel is not to seek any special advantage from these objects of creation, but instead is supposed to seek the special advantage from the one who created them. So verse 20 moves on, but 
the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people for his own inheritance as you are this day. So the sun and the moon and stars didn't take special notice of Israel. They didn't pull Israel out of Egypt. They have not given Israel any commands, any covenant. They haven't done anything for Israel other than what they do for all the people. So it would be nonsensical then for Israel to look from the sun and the moon and the stars anything that is not given to all peoples under the heavens. Interestingly, the Lord is telling the people of Israel, look for more than that. Look for more than what all the peoples have. Look to me, the one who, in verse 7, is near to you whenever you call upon me. That's the one you ought to look for and look for advantage from. Now, in Israel's day, it seemed very practically wise to worship idols of things that are seen all around the earth, And it seemed practically wise to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. And those who did often seemed to have great advantage. Psalm 73 is a great example of that, right? Um, The evil are always at ease. They prosper. Things are are good for people who do evil things. Not all of them, but, but some of them. Maybe we should do as they do. Well, for us, it seems very practical to work for food or money or clothing. Um, But... Uh, Those things have not purchased our eternal redemption. We don't serve those things. We serve the God who provides those things to those who seek his kingdom first. And so uh, all sorts of New Testament uh, phrases and verses and ideas could fall under that idea. I don't think we need to go into it for time today. Thoughts or questions through verse 20. All right, verse 21 and 22 seems to be a digression, but it is related. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. So Moses seems to be complaining about and to the people again uh, for their fault and his inability to enter into the promised land. And that seems completely out of the blue. But I don't think it really is. I think it's related. First, one commentator pointed out, it's, it's kind of a, a screwy idea, but it fits fairly well, actually. Moses could be staving off anyone from venerating him don't look to me either even i am mortal i die in this land i don't receive the inheritance don't elevate me too high but more likely i think moses is simply showing that when the lord's people fail to trust the lord's power and his presence which are the two things that he's trying to warn them from seeking don't seek god's presence through idols Don't look to lesser powers to give you what the greatest power offers you. When the Lord's people distrust God's power and presence, things go very bad, even for God's appointed man. Even Moses doesn't make it when the people distrust God. Earlier, he has used other people's death to show the Lord's severity for covenant infidelity. Now Moses is using his own death 
to show the people the Lord's severity for covenant infidelity. Don't worship false images, because that has happened. Even I am dying and not able to enter into the land of promise. Instead, Moses reminds the people of how they ought to worship. Verse 23, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. The Lord your God is a jealous, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In every way, Israel owes all its worship to the Lord, and for them to give worship to anyone or anything else is the ultimate form of treason and one that the Lord will not stand for. Nothing else purchased Israel. The Lord alone purchased Israel. For them to worship someone or something else is to provoke the Lord's jealousy, and even the otherwise faithful get caught in the wake of that sin and the Lord's consumption which is Moses' own experience. Questions or comments through verse 22. Okay, verse 22, uh, verses 15 to 24. I'm sorry, verse 24. I won't stop at 22. 15 to 24 covers one big theme. It is Moses' warning to Israel against idolatry. Verses 25 to 28, uh, Moses moves on to the eventuality and the disastrous results of Israel's idolatry, which is to say the Lord, Israel is going to apostatize. And when it happens, disaster will follow. Moses here is predicting it. So verse 25 and 26, despite Moses' warnings, commands, and pleadings, he predicts Israel's apostasy. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, now the ESV and I believe the NIV have if, making this a contingent possibility. So if this thing were to happen, the NASB and the KJV have it, I think, more correct. They simply have it as an eventuality. When you father your children, children, you will act corruptly, or and act corruptly, perhaps. There is no if in the Hebrew text. This isn't a possibility. The NASV and the KJV read better here. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, and you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. On what grounds does Moses predict this? First, on the grounds of Israel's history. As soon as the covenant was ratified, Israel went astray and made the golden calf. In Exodus, I believe 32. Recently, 
Israel was led astray into Baal worship, uh, Baal of Peor, at almost the exact location where Moses is speaking now. And the Lord went through with a plague and killed a number of people. So at the beginning and at the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering, there has been idol worship. Moses predicts this based on Israel's past. I suspect he also bases it on Israel's present practices. If we were to go over to Joshua 24, the very end of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, verse 14. This is a uh, powerful passage in Joshua. It's worth reading the whole thing. We're not going to do it. We'll only look at verse 14. But Joshua says to the people, as he's renewing the covenant for the third time in Israel's history, by the way, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. When Joshua says, put them away, I draw from that an implication that even after the conquest, Israel still had in her midst foreign gods. Which means... And since the reference includes all of the gods from the past, the gods your fathers worshipped, and the gods that were worshipped in Egypt, that they've carried them with them, lo, these, at this point, between 40 and 80 years. Uh, so, no doubt, in Moses' own day, there was idols in Israel's midst. And Moses can see that, and he is pleading with Israel, don't do that. Put those things away. And that's the call Joshua picks up as well in Joshua 24 on his own deathbed speech. There will be witnesses to testify against Israel. And it is fascinating that in verse 26, Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That is, all of those things that you've been worshiping, they themselves will testify against you that you have been worshiping them when the Lord comes to judge what you have done. And then in verse 26, the rest of verse 26, he lays out the punishment for idolatry. You will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. So the punishment is they will be moved from the land through death, now, it was already mentioned in verse uh, 3 of chapter 4. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you the men who followed Baal of Peor. That is the same word in verse 26 as is in verse 3. As is in chapter 1, ver uh, chapter 2, verse 21. Used again of pagan nations. Uh, the Zamzumim were a great people and many and as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites. So basically, idolatry reduces the people of God to the same level as any other nation. And once Israel debases herself to that point, the Lord does for them or against them the same thing he does against other nations that have reached the peak of their uh, immorality, which is he just utterly destroys them and removes them off 
so that a nation more righteous, though pagan, may take their place. This is also the undoing of the covenant promises. So it is a decrease of population because of death. It is also a removal from the land. So Israel loses not only the population the Lord had promised them, Israel also loses the land the Lord had promised. So back to Genesis 17. And here we're going to read a little bit uh, out of Genesis 17. We'll read about eight verses. So Genesis 17, verses 1 to 8. This is the Lord's covenant with Abraham. One that was a little bit different from the one in Genesis 15, though they are all tightly related. Genesis 17 starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now here's the section that we're, we're really interested in. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. Now the first thing to notice is the conditionality of that covenant in verse 1 and 2. Walk before me and be blameless in order that I may make my covenant between me and you. There is a condition. Walk before me and be blameless leads to, I will make my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And there are attached blessings to that covenant, verses 6 to 8. Those blessings are increase of population. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. The establishment of the covenant, verse 7, and the land given in verse 8. Now, all of those things are stated unconditionally. So we have unconditionality sitting within conditionality, which is to say the Lord is going to do these things. And as we'll come to in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord is going to do these things. But one's experience of those blessings is contingent on whether or not they follow the commandments. So there is a conditionality and there are blessings attached with the condition. As we go back to Deuteronomy 4, we'll make a stop by Leviticus 26 and look at three passages there. Leviticus 26 is the blessings for obedience and punishments for disobedience. And of course, we're not coming to it any time near this year. But at the end of Deuteronomy, when we come to the extended blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, Moses is drawing from Leviticus 26. Leviticus lays the foundation for Deuteronomy in that sense. So Leviticus 
26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then verse 6, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I will remove harm, harmful beasts from the land and the sword will not go through your land. So there I take that to be the blessing of security within the land. Jumping down to verse 9, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. There we have the confirmation of the covenant as well as an increase of people. So, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, on the surface quite simple, but they do not work mechanistically, which is to say, blessings and curses are not given as a slot machine. I put in the right coin of obedience, the machine spits out blessing. I put in the wrong coin of disobedience, the machine spits out a curse. That's not the way it works. Yahweh is a personal God who responds to individuals with his own subjective judgment of measured blessing and of measured cursing. Consider Paul. Who was more deserving of the Lord's curse than the persecutor of the church? Paul should have received cursing. He didn't. Because God is not a slot machine. Consider your own life. Before you became a Christian, what did you deserve? And why didn't you get it? Because the Lord isn't a slot machine. Now think simply about your own experience. If you have a very, very dear friend offend you in the exact same way an acquaintance offends you, how does your reaction differ? Right? If a very, very dear friend offends you, likely your initial reaction is going to be more aggressive. Violent isn't the right word, but it is going to be more visceral than if someone you don't know all that well offends you. But there is reconciliation. Whereas if the acquaintance offends you, you're more likely to let it roll off your back, but you're going to remember it for a long time, right? So even the way we respond to the same circumstances is going to vary depending on who the person is because we're personal beings and we're in relationship with personal beings and there is history there and there are some people we have chosen to set our affections on and there are some people we have not chosen to set our affections on. The Lord works like that. The Lord has chosen to set his affections on people, and he has chosen how he is going to respond to them. The way he is going to respond to Israel's disobedience to the covenant, I will utterly destroy you. Now, I'm going to pause here before we move on, because that's not the end of the story, but that is the story. We can say God loves you no matter what. As long as we include within that verses 26 and 27. You will not live long in the land. You will be utterly destroyed. Verse 27. 
and the Lord will scatter you among the people, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Cursing is part of the blessing of covenant. It is a blessing to come into the covenant with the Lord, but then once we're enjoying that blessing, depending on how we respond to it, blessings or cursing can result from it. Not only that, we can say God loves you no matter what, as long as we include, when we say that, at least Joshua 24, verses 19 and 20. And I'll, I'll just read it to you if you don't want to flip back there. This is Joshua in the same passage we read before. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, which we just saw in Deuteronomy 4. He will not forgive your sins or your transgressions. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. At some point, God removes himself, and all we are left with is our own folly. And the worst that we can come to is to the spiritual blindness to where we are not even worshiping the Lord, and it doesn't seem to matter all that much. Read verse 28 of Deuteronomy 4. So we read verse 27. Israel is among the nations. And now the ultimate low point, verse 28. There you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. That is the low point of the punishment the Lord will give to his people. And so there, there are four punishments. Uh, first is death. Second is being scattered. Third, decrease of population. Fourth, Israel will be cursed with spiritual blindness and futility. And those things happen because Israel is in covenant with the Lord. Not because they aren't. That happens as a result of the covenant. Questions or comments through verse 28? Well, I won't pause long there because we have to get to verses 29 to 31. The triumph of grace. Verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, like verse 25 and 26, this is not a condition. This is a prediction. So verse 25 says, if you act corruptly by making a carved image. Forget the if. When you act corruptly by making a carved image. What this is, is when you are there and you seek the Lord, you will find him. It is a prediction of restoration, the exact same as it was a prediction of desecration earlier on. So both predictions, and like, uh, like the conditionality of the blessings of the covenant, this unconditional reality is going to come with a condition. Uh, verse Twenty, verse 30, sorry, verse 29. There you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. And how, how will you find him? If, or in what condition will you find him? If you search after him with all your heart 
and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Now, Israel is not able to return to God because of their turning. Their turning is the condition that is met in which God is found. They are able to return to God because of verse 31. Why can you return to the Lord? For or because the Lord your God is a merciful God or a compassionate God. The reason you can go back to God is not because of your turning. It's because of God's preset preference for mercy instead of judgment. What compassion looks like comes in the rest of verse 31. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. I'm going to start first with the presence. He will not leave you. God's presence remains and the covenant stays in force. That is the reason that the Lord destroys them earlier on. The Lord is giving them the covenant curses that he told them would fall upon them if they were disobedient to the covenant. If we remain faithful, he is faithful. If we remain faithless, he remains faithful. Right? He's faithful to the covenant. And part of the covenant are the curses that are attached to it. The reason Israel experiences death, exile, and loss of land is because the Lord is being faithful to the covenant. The reason they can come back is because the Lord is faithful to his covenant. But if the Lord is near, he is also near to be called upon. That is God's grace. And that is what we say to the one who is wandering. Not that God loves you no matter what, but that he's always ready to hear you when you call on him. There is a condition that has to be fulfilled for his blessings to fall upon you, and those blessings are turn to him. And what that turning looks like, go back to verse 30. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God. And what that returning looks like is obeying his voice. Those two things are in parallel. Return to the Lord is in tandem, in parallel, with obeying the Lord's voice. So when the Lord, uh, when we are in tribulation, God's grace is that even though it is a self-inflicted tribulation because of our own folly, the Lord is still there to be called upon. And he will hear when we call on him and return to him by obeying his voice. Now one more thing I have to point out here. Verse, going up real quickly to... Uh, let's start in verse uh, 31. So uh, we dealt with the, he will not leave you. And we also just dealt with the, he will not forget his covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Let's go to the third, the middle thing in verse 31. He will not leave you or destroy you. Verse 31 is he will not destroy you. If you were 
uh, able to notice at the end of verse 26, what does the Lord do to the people of Israel when he exiles them? He utterly destroys them. So does he utterly destroy or does he not destroy? Well, unhelpfully, those are actually two different words that are translated the same way. If we want to know what is going on here, let's go back. First, let's do this. There is a pattern that forms in chapter 4. Uh, jump back up with me, if you will, to verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. Beware lest you act corruptly. I want you to notice that word, act corruptly. Does anyone have a different translation than act corruptly? Say again. Become. Okay, become corrupt. Great. Let's jump down to verse 25. You will have the same translation. Whatever it was you have, you'll have it again. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly or become corrupt, then in verse 31, the Lord your God, he will not leave you or destroy you. The word translated destroy is the same word translated become corrupt in the previous two verses. That seems odd. What I want you to pay attention to right now is this pattern. You corrupt yourself, you corrupt yourself, you become destroyed. You're, you're destroyed by the Lord. Okay, that's the pattern. Corruption, corruption, destruction. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Remember, corrupt, corrupt, destruction. Corrupt, corrupt, destruction. Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The pattern of Genesis 6, 11 to 13, is the exact same pattern that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 4. Corruption, corruption, destruction. The reason I point out all three of those are the same words. It's the same, so we're dealing with the same word six times. Corrupt, corrupt, destruct. Corrupt, corrupt, destruct. Same word all times. If you wanted to know a word that would work in all of those settings, think of ruin. When you ruin yourself, when you ruin yourself, the Lord will ruin you. The reason I point that out is because right here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is beginning to give us a glimpse of what the divine righteous judgments and statutes are that he has already addressed earlier on in the chapter. So one of the things Israel is known by is their righteous statutes and their righteous judgments because the Lord gives them. What the Lord gives is the standard of divine justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They ruined themselves, so in return, the Lord ruins them. What is happening in verse 31 is that pattern is switched. So we had verse 16, 25, and verse... Uh, Yeah, we had it three times earlier, corrupt, 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 
But what we have then in verse 31 is the breaking of that pattern. The Lord will not destroy. The Lord will not ruin, though he was going to utterly destroy you. This word here for destroy is a different word. When it says he will not utterly destroy you. I draw this out to make this point. God's compassion wins out in the end. God's compassion causes him to look beyond Israel's sin, to look beyond the righteous judgment he's given, and in the end, bring mercy where judgment is deserved. And he does it because of a covenant he made with someone else. End of verse 31. He will not forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Israel, as a nation, has a secure future, not because individuals of any generation are obedient to the covenant. Israel, as a nation, has a secure future because the Lord made a covenant with someone in the past, and that covenant is irrevocable. We enjoy the covenant of the Lord because he made a covenant with someone in the past, And it's an irrevocable covenant, and therefore our future is secured. The Lord made a covenant with with himself, with his own son. The father covenants with the son. I am going to set you as king over the earth. You will have a people, and the Lord is going to raise up people. But our participation, our experience in that covenant is conditional. Do we return to the Lord and obey his voice? So the pattern that Moses sets out here in Deuteronomy 4 is the template for the gospel that Jesus will live into and fulfill and that Paul elaborates on through the rest of the gospel, uh, through the rest of the epistles. And so, once again, we come back to the fact, uh, John, uh, not John, Daniel Block uh, called this the gospel of Moses. This is the gospel. The Lord will not utterly, the Lord will not destroy you in the end because he made a covenant with someone else. He will restore you. You will turn back to him. But your experience in that is conditioned on your turning. And so there, there we have the gospel laid out as well. Thoughts or questions before we call it a wrap for today? Very good. Have a good week. Hope to see you next week.